welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. This week's chat on Writers Talking was so interesting. It was a little bit different. We are talking about a nonfiction writer who is writing about emotions and psychology. And so I hope you love this interview and I hope you think about going out to get this book. I say it in the episode, but honestly, if you are looking to create really deep and three-dimensional characters who are working through their transformational arc, you will find this book really, really helpful. Enjoy. Renaud Purifoy is an internationally known author, therapist, and teacher. Born and raised in California, Purifoy received his master's degree in counseling from the University of San Francisco and worked for 20 years as a marriage and family therapist specializing in anxiety disorders and trauma. It was during this time that he wrote his first book, Anxiety, Phobias, and Panic, Taking Charge and Conquering Fear, that has now sold over 200,000 copies. After publishing two more books that became known in multiple languages, Purifoy retired from private practice to teach at a local college. He's now retired from teaching as well and has finished a new book, Why You Feel the Way You Do. He's especially excited about this project as it has allowed him to research the new discoveries being made in effective neuroscience the science that explores the biological circuits in the brain that generate emotions. Purifoy continues to live near the capital of California. He is married and has two grown children. In his spare time, he enjoys playing guitar and gardening. One of the first things I was going to say that I really noticed with your book, before we get into maybe some of the things that the listeners know that I like to talk about, which is your process. But I noticed that a lot of what you're writing in this book, not only is it incredibly accessible, you don't use a lot of jargon. You've got references in there, which is great, but it's very accessible. But I thought so much about how writers of fiction can really use a lot of the work that you've done in this book to Mm -hmm. help them form realistic characters. Oh, cool. I'm sure that wasn't your intention, but well, maybe... No, but it's, 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 it's brand new market, right? <laughs> there you go. But maybe you can talk a little bit, I know you mentioned it at the start of the book, where the genesis for this particular book came uh, from for you. Well, I, I've been interested in behavior since I was a little kid. My parents were from farming backgrounds. And so we had, I I raised rabbits and chickens and we had dogs and cats and a parrot. And occasionally we'd raise other things, geese or whatever, you know, ducks and this and that. And, you know, I had the only trained chickens on the block. Oh, wow. Uh, But so, yeah. So, you know, it's, and even now we trade our cat. So. uh, Wow. That's amazing. You know, she has to sit and stand and, you know, do some of the stuff in order to eat. Of course, that's that's the only time you train cats is when they eat, right? Yeah, I was uh, going to say, to train a cat is amazing because cats are so independent. Well, yeah, they're mercenary, right? So yeah. dog, dogs are very pleasure-centered, so they're easy to train. You know, give them praise and they'll do it. Yeah. Cats, you, you got to give them a reward. Yeah, so. <laughs> there you go. So after your initial interest, and I know you say in the book as well, how this sort of morphed from strict animal behavior to people behavior. How did you you make that? Well, I 
I was, you know, in, in college, I studied what was called entheology, which is animal behavior. And, and I taught secondary education. And I had a friend who was a counselor. And uh, I like helping people. I like working with people, I like teaching, as you can see from the book, the way it's yeah. written. <laughs> and just talking with him, my relationship with him, I started thinking, well, gee, you know, I, I think I'd like to do this. Uh, I went over and lived in Japan for a couple of years uh, right after I graduated and taught over there for a couple of years. And during that time, you know, I was thinking more, you know, I think I'd like to do counseling. So then that's when I came back and got my master's in counseling and started working, you know, with anxiety disorders. And the rest was kind of history. That is amazing. I have mm -hmm. my own background with anxiety. So I decided mm -hmm. I definitely have your previous books on my to be read pile. I've got to get those mm -hmm. ordered. And I know that one of them in particular was really, really popular. Which title right. was that? That's the first one, Anxiety, Phobies, and Panic, and Taking yeah. Charge and Conquering Fear. And it was actually kind of uh, the first book to use what we call a multimodal approach. Uh, when okay. I first started working with anxiety disorders, I'd go to conferences and do my presentation. And you had your psychodynamic people, your cognitive behavioral people, and then your yeah, your cognitive people were actually separate from your behavioral people at that time. Right. Okay. You know, and you know, behaviorists would get up and talk, and then you know, the the cognitive people and the psychodynamic people would be snickering and kind of laughing, and then the <laughs> psychodynamic person would get up and they would talk. You know, and, and I, I uh, did some training down in LA with some people that were pioneering some work with anxiety disorders, and I said, yeah. you know, I, I like to do this, and uh, I said you know, this is crazy. You throw it all against the wall, see what sticks. So I started just taking everything that I knew and putting it all together. And I found that, you know, this person, this combination works for them and this person, another combination works for them. So I kind of work all of the three general areas of psychology together. And, and you really can divide psychology into your behavioral, your cognitive and your psychodynamic and a lot of variations within that. Everybody comes up with a new name for the same thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then they market it, right? Yeah. Well, I thought that was one thing that I was really appreciative of reading the book. Like I said, it's very accessible. You don't overwhelm a reader with jargon. And I think coming from an experiential background as well, maybe some of that led to it, but there are others who really try to overload you with their. I don't know, their expertise where oh, I could, I right. noticed, yeah, I noticed, oh, that's yeah. the cognitive section. And then we're getting to the behavioral section. And then you mm -hmm. got the actions afterwards. It makes it really easy to follow and take the step that you're actually recommending. And you've well, got some characters in there. So I'll call them characters, but obviously maybe amalgamations are just based on all exactly. the people you've worked with. I'm yeah, guessing you, 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 you take a little of this person, a little bit of that person, you put them together because that's it makes it a little easier. Shows, shows you what you want to do, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I like how you had several people and then you were showing their journey in snippets and mm -hmm. even throughout the book in these chapters, which sort of leads me to the process question. So tell me a little bit about coming from a place where you're working very person centered to sitting down and doing something like writing a book, which is the the opposite, right? You're right. taking all of that experience, but what was that like for you? And how did you actually approach it? Did you outline? Did you just... Well, the, the first book actually started out as a mail order program. It was oh, like wow. a, a series of, of lessons that I would send out with uh, at that at that time, cassette tapes, right? Yes. Half your people don't even know what, what those things are, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know what those are. I know what those are. Yeah. But those those recordings, you know, so they would have uh, like a lesson, and then I had some uh, what I called relaxation response. They were kind of a hypnotic, but 
you say hypnosis and people freak out. So you say yeah, relaxation no, response. Fun. Yeah. You know, and then it's okay, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I had I had about uh, let's say I think I think that was twenty lessons, and I got real tired of mailing it out. And my kids were my <laughs> f- fulfillment sitter. Uh, they were in grade school at the time, so they would get like at that time like so much money for every package they put together. Right? Oh my goodness! And uh, which is good for them. You know, I I believe people need to learn how to work. I mean, I I started my paper route back in uh, when I was in fifth grade and did that yeah. for up to junior through school in fact uh when i f- finished my paper route i had about three thousand uh, dollars that i'd saved up and so wow. i bought the f- 15 kruger rands uh, which are gold at now it's gold each and that's why i used to publish my first book was my paper route buddy no way that's yeah, amazing yeah. that is incredible yeah, so you were tired of so, so doing I, all this individual so like, i said I'll, I'll, I'll put it Put it into a book form, right? Yeah. And so uh, my process is I, I write by committee in sort in a sense, in that I would write a chapter, and then I had several clients, and then they would read it, and then uh, I would rewrite it or you know edit it according to them. Then I had another lady that I hired who was uh, very good at editor, and then of course when I finally did sell it, settle it, I had a third person go through it and do you know copy yeah. editing and stuff. Yeah. So uh, I, I found having lots of people read the work. In fact, I, this book the same way is uh, yeah. I had a lot of beta readers and they you know they give you excellent feedback well you know this sounds really good I followed this I wish I had more of this this didn't make any sense <laughs> and so I, I just found if you have a really thick skin and you let a lot of people read your work it gets yeah. better you know yeah. trouble is a lot of people are so sensitive and somebody criticizes and you know my, my thought is well if everybody's saying the same thing i need to rewrite it yes. and if it's only one person and i really like it i'll keep it you know that's exactly right well i talk to writers about having that filter right. and depending on where you are in the process right so for example if somebody were going to be self-publishing right everybody still needs editing let me just say it again oh, yeah. everybody needs editing but you get to be the the end checker when it comes right. to all of these right. particular yep. things. So if you're very married to a particular thing, even if you've gotten feedback, I suppose you can do it. Yep. But getting that feedback can give you a, a potential response that readers are going to give you anyway. If, right. like yep. you said, when you sold that first book after having lots and lots of feedback, you're still going to go through more edits. So even somebody who's written and gotten it uh, acquired by a publisher mm-hmm. will need to edit again all with the goal being it's never going to reach perfect i love right. that you address perfectionism in the book as well one of the clients that i had editing the first book was ocd oh, she's the only only client i ever had who edited my intake form no that's wow. why i said so I, said, I want this lady to edit my book <laughs> She's going to point out everything nobody oh, else yeah. sees. It, wow. Every page. In fact, that's how I learned how to write. We we threw out about a third of the verbiage, uh, and she was great. At the end, she sent me this note that said, uh, you know, I really like the book, but I had my pen in hand, and I really didn't mean to make so many comments, but I had my pen in hand. <laughs> <laughs> so it just came out. So that's she was actually- great. I think a really valuable way of learning. Yeah. And as you've said too, you you take that learning to yeah. future projects. So for the first book, you'd had, we'll call it a course, but it was really based around the work that you were doing right. day in and day out with people. When it right. came to the second book, it's sort of having not seen that first one, 
I wouldn't know how it compares to that one because you've got some of the same themes, but it isn't so specific around anxiety. How did you approach this one? Like the things you took from that first learning and how did you well, approach this book? It, it all goes out of my uh, uh, work. But l- let me mention too, one of the editors, the second editor I had of the book, mm-hmm. and I think this is good for writers to do, is to pay attention to what you do that's really not very good. One of the phrases I would use a lot was, you know, and the most important thing and it's important to know and so she would put like three arrows on the page and say so which is really the most important yeah yeah it's true and there were some other phrases that i used you know that that i just learned that these are things i need to quit doing and that's something just you know have a little file put some put some of those things down so when you write you can go back through and say okay i need to figure out which one really is the most important? Are they all yeah. important or is yeah. it just one thing? So. Well, you know what? Certain writers have, all writers that I know of, and the the list can change over right. time as we learn and shift. Right. And But all writers have these particular words. So it could be so or but or just. Right. Right. So you're right, not being so sensitive that right. you can't have somebody point that out and say, hey, yep. I'm looking to improve my craft, right? right? So yes, and having a list for yourself so you can use that little trick, find Mm -hmm. in your Word document Mm -hmm. so you don't have to worry about going and reading it all the first time. You just know, I know these are my words or these are my phrases, you know? And and the other other thing about having beta readers, you know, with your work is you don't see it for a couple of weeks. And so oh, when you read yeah. it, you know, you, you know, and the thing is when you first write something, and this is something when I was teaching that I kept trying to get over to the kids, you know, don't write your paper the day before, because yeah. when you write something and it makes perfect sense to you, because you know what you're trying to say, you let it set for a few days or a week or a couple of weeks, you go back and you look at it and you say, this is gobbledygook. This <laughs> absolutely does not say anything that's intelligent. You don't see it at first because your brain just, it's kind of like when you see these things where they've taken words and they've scrambled them, yes, but they've kept the exactly. first letter. Your yes. brain makes sense out of it. So whatever you're writing it initially makes sense. So you need to let things set so that you can come back and look at it fresh. And especially if you go through the process of having people read it and then go back and look at it with their comments, you begin to see all kinds of stuff that you needed to change. And yeah. that's really important. How long did it take you then for the second book from the initial initial writing of each chapter and getting that feedback from start to finish each chapter each time gets quicker because you get better at it uh the first book took me about a year because i you know i really did a lot of a lot of people read it did a lot of work with you know uh, learning how to write basically because you know you you learn how to write basic english in school but how to write a book is a whole different process and (laughs) that for me was something to try to make it where it was intelligent took some time uh second book was quicker i don't know exactly how many is is around a year a little bit less Uh, but again it 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 grew out of the work you know after i wrote the first book i said you know this is good people like it because it's very cookbook format right but people need something more for what then i was calling long-term recovery now they call it relapse prevention and that's where you have to get into some of that psychodynamic stuff the stuff from the kids because like with panic disorder once a person develops panic disorder it tends to exaggerate all the childhood stuff so if i had some feelings of insecurity when i was a kid now that i have these panic attacks it really comes up full force and i 
really begin to see how I, I'm inadequate or there's something wrong with me. And yeah. you, you, you start living your label. That was one of the things that I found wow. with modern therapy that sometimes is a problem is all the labeling. You know, people yeah. will come in, you'll say, so why are you here? Well, I'm a codependent. I got panic disorder, limited to PTSD, and I got this and that. And so then you say, so what does that mean? And they can't tell you. They can't put it into a simple words. So, you know, they don't have a way to think about it or to work with the problem. Yeah. So, so that was one of the reasons why I wrote the second book is I wanted to get more of the, uh, more of that, that psychodynamic stuff. The, what, what back then I was calling core beliefs, but now I, I call core response patterns because it really yeah. is a very unconscious response pattern that develops yeah. and just identifying those. And then how do you work with those the response patterns? And that's a lot of what I do in the middle part, of course, of this, this new book is talking about how those associations become just automatic patterns. People don't realize how unconscious they are. You know, yeah. you got your brain makes all these associations about what's good and what's bad. In fact, that's one of the key things about the brain is it's good at making connections. And sometimes yeah. it makes wrong connections, right? But then you're busy thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner or what TV I'm going to watch or I'm listening to the radio. And the main and at the same time, your unconscious is not only managing your body, managing your movements, driving a car, uh, but it's also alert on alert for any association for danger or for good stuff. And yeah. as soon as that, that association clicks or it knows notices it at an unconscious level, it pops into your conscious mind. Right. So, you know, that that aspect, I, I just find it's, it's an important part. The cognitive behavioral is how you change those things over time. I yeah. mean, I did a lot, a lot of work with desensitization and working with core belief systems is in, in a sense, a form of desensitization. If right. I've associated a conflict with danger, I have to uh, desensitize the conflict, be able to use my tools that I'm learning. Otherwise, right. those unconscious bells and whistles will keep overwhelming me. Right. And, and I ah. think that's the, the other thing about emotions that is not well understood in the common population is how important they are in terms of the brain indexing information. Mm. You know, when things happen to you, your brain puts an emotional stamp on it, either positive or negative. And the more important the thing is, the stronger the emotional stamp. And that's how the brain sorts information. Mm. And that's why experiential learning is so much more important than book learning. Yeah. Uh, and the, the example I give is you can learn everything there is to learn about uh, driving a car. But until you get behind the wheel, then the brain can start making association. Oh, my, that didn't yeah. work. Oh, oh, this feels pretty good. And once it makes enough of those associations, you can become unconscious again and you let that unconscious brain start to manage that activity for you because yeah. now it's, it's indexed the information into important and less important. And that's true for just about every activity you do in life. And again, that's that's nice because again, we can think about what I'm going to have for dinner or what yeah. I'm going to watch on TV and I don't have to worry about that stuff. Yeah, but it's just if it's sort of having this negative impact on your well, life. If, if I grew up in a really dicey family, mm. then there's a whole bunch of stuff that got laid labeled as dangerous or not good, that actually is the opposite of what it should be. And right. that's, you know, I, I, to simplify, oversimplify it, I'll say, you know, all of the core beliefs that, that a person came up with or, or bases their life on, a child came up with. Mm. And when you think about that, that's why there's so much crazy stuff in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. You have all, all these adults walking around basing their life on a set of core beliefs and associations that a little kid developed. Yeah. And well, that's why yeah. I, I think it reminds me of two things. One the movie the pixar movie inside out okay uh -huh. yeah so we've got that visual of these core beliefs but the truth is it's not just kids walking around with these yes yeah, adults it's people, and they, right and they do and they do bad things <laughs> 
Yeah, well, and and we're labeling them. What I liked was that you've got this combination that, by the way, listeners, this all is really helpful for creating these realistic characters in your books. It's also really helpful for when you are writing your own books, because depending on what we're writing, I work a lot with writers around that subconscious or the unconscious having really massive impact on what oh, we're yeah. writing. And yeah. when people are writing fiction, especially, or even if they're writing memoir, they may have yep. lived it. So they think, oh, I'm fine to go through it, but they will be triggered or mm. their character will be triggered. And right. then they have to know how to unpack this book non-intentionally, I'm sure, right. is actually got so much great information, not only for how a writer can help their characters get more insight. And by right. the way, you've got an amazing section where you expand on actual emotive words versus mm. uh, a mental state where right. people, you talk about confusing a mental state yep, yep. with an emotion. And so yeah. it's great just as a vocabulary <laughs> list mm -hmm. for swapping things out. I would say also for getting more specific and intentional about what emotion a character is having, but recognize that when we're writing, what has triggered our character may be something that's triggered enough, right? On that unconscious level. Well, that, that's why you enjoy movies and TV programs, right? Yes. They trigger things inside of you that you've experienced in your past. Mm. And that's why you can, are able to do that suspension of disbelief and yes. get, involved, get involved with them. Yeah. And hopefully, and this is my own personal preference for having something that gives us ultimately a hopeful transformation. So a place right. where we've learned and we've grown and it doesn't have to be, nor is it ever usually very easy, right? It's all in that messy middle part. You have a chapter about making friends with the emotions. Right. And that was really reflective of something, again, that I talk with writers about, which is making friends with what I call their internal editor, which is probably a little bit more similar to like a, a Freudian superego or something mm -hmm. like that. But that little voice that's in there that is often running unconsciously. So if mm -hmm. somebody were trying to write and just ignore it, the internal editor, like we were talking about your editing process before, right. having other people, well, we can often be really critical of what we're writing. Or we know that the word that we wrote down isn't quite the right word or the word right. we wanted, right. and we can get stuck there. And oftentimes that interaction with the internal editor is like, well, I'll just ignore it and, and I'll just keep pushing through. But like a, a toddler who wants your attention or even like a dog, they, right. they will get your attention. They'll just get louder or messier or whatever. And so I often say to make friends with that internal editor, turn, yep, yep. I mean, figuratively and say, what is it that you want to tell me? And that was so in sync with what you were talking about for people to recognize their emotion rather than suppress, repress, deny that that emotion is trying to tell them something important. You have a particular uh, example in there of Mac and yeah. re I think he was repressing his anger and there were right. reasons for it right. in his childhood. But yeah. what you talk about with him is about unpacking why we don't want to keep doing that that today and how it's sort of impacting the way that he interacts in this new way as an adult in a new country. I loved all your examples. Well, I've, I've got about five things I was thinking as you're talking. Oh, well, one, one little thing that I would suggest for writers is, you know, I had students do this all the time, is they would have a something they're trying to say, and it's a gobbledygook sentence or paragraph, 
and they keep trying to fix the paragraph. And I would say, okay, I want you just to look at me and tell me what you're trying to say. And they would say, and they would express it very clearly. Sometimes, and I I found this was typical for me too. Sometimes you start trying to fix a a paragraph or sentence that's, you know, just, it's mangled, right? And and you keep trying to add this word here or change this phrase and it's not working. And I find just forget about it. Think about what am I trying to say and write it? And usually it comes out exactly the way it needs to come out. So sometimes it it, it pays not to try to keep fixing something, but just to start fresh. Well, I I love that. I usually say, don't worry about it. Put a little note that you'll come back to it. But I think that is good too, because aren't we accessing a different part of our brain or a slightly different part of our brain when we're speaking a thought rather than when we are? Well, we do. And and sometimes you just get fixated on something, you know? Yeah. And and so it's it's just, okay, let's just start fresh over here. And then it then allows your mind to kind of put it all together for you in, in the way it's supposed to. But getting back to what you're saying, this idea of, of being in touch with your emotions, you know, emotions are just their messages. They're mm-hmm. messages about needs that need to be taken care of, yeah. positive or negative. And it's so common for people to have what, again, in the book, I call taboo emotions, things that they're not to, that they just for whatever reason from, from their childhood, whether it's anger or intimacy or whatever, they're things that they that they're not supposed to feel. And one of the characteristics Characteristics that you find people do when that happens is they go into kind of a robotic behavior. So mm. again, uh, it actually Max, very similar to my brother, very control freak, right? Mm. And so we were watching a TV program, you know, a sensitive moment comes up on TV. And we start talking politics or we got to go out and clean those gutters, you know, it's just, you know, it's like you avoid that at all costs because again, it makes you feel out of control, you know? And, and the fun thing about emotions is once you learn to be clear to them, they just sort of pass through you, you get the message and you move on to the next thing. I'm watching my great grandchild right now. She's three and a half. And it's so, it's so much fun because emotions just flow through her, you know, she's angry. She goes in the next room and she pouts for a few minutes and she comes back and she's happy ready to play a tickle and whatever and yeah. it's just you know moment to moment it's just she's in the now and again as adults we tend not to do that we tend to suppress things or yeah. go into a lot of uh, what i call that circular why questioning i don't understand yes happening yes which doesn't fix anything i love yeah. that section too because with all of the things that you brought up i was trying to identify is that something i've felt or something i've seen and at first i wasn't sure what that what that meant but i thought yeah. we do do that when we're in a place of not being able to identify well it's emotion. it's it's more reality doesn't fit my beliefs about what it should be. Yes. And that's the bottom line. People come in all the time and they would say, you know, I don't understand. So I say, so why do you think that happens? Well, probably because of this, but I don't understand. You know, they immediately <laughs> go back into that because their belief is, you know, for example, people should be fair, right? <laughs> well, my, my friend was so unfair to me. I don't understand how they could do that. Well, people should be fair. So why might they be unfair? Well, they maybe had a bad day. They may just be a nasty person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole lot of reasons why. Yeah. But people should be fair, especially my friends. So I don't understand. So rather than accept the reality that sometimes people are unfair for a variety of reasons, and what am I going to do about it? Which again, it was always my focus. Is I, I, in fact, I used to tell people, I'm just a positive realist. You know, sometimes reality sucks, but you know, you got to deal with it. Yeah. So rather than sit here and say, I don't understand or this should happen, okay, this happened. What am I going to do about it? Yes. And that's that's such an important, important thing for people to learn. And people, don't do that very often. Oftentimes they get stuck, I should say, and not yeah. doing it. I don't, that's a, that resistance. We know that yeah. 
whatever we, we resist is not actually going away, like ignoring yeah. the emotion or yeah. the internal editor yeah. or the whatever. Yeah. It still exists. It's just a matter of when we are going to get to the place where maybe we surrender, which is the time that like you were talking about with your great grandchild. And right. it just made me think that that flowing through is because she's not in resistance right. to it. She feels it fully. Yeah. Like maybe, yeah. maybe uncomfortable for the people around yeah. her in the moment, depending on how it, it shows itself. But for her, she's fully living it. And I know this is sort of even a tangent, but I was just thinking too, how this is related to even me as a parent, or I look at other parents and trying to keep, for example, a child quiet, not validating what they're feeling and just letting them fully feel it in the moment. Right. And I get the way we don't want to do that when we're out in public or we don't want somebody to have a tantrum in the middle of the shops or whatever. But for the most part, if we let them do it, they can let it move through them. It's like a like a storm right. of emotion, right? One seminar I went to a long time ago that, that had a big impact on me is they talked about how when you are resisting feeling something, maybe like a sad feeling, then that's when your eyes get all red and you know, all this stuff happens. And if you allow it to just be in touch with it, it kind of flows through you. You know, I get emotional sometimes, you know, but then it comes and it goes and I'm ready to move on again. It's it's interesting how that works. So I'm going to go back to this first. I'm really curious about what got you interested in this particular part of the work that you've been doing. So like I said, very accessible, very specific, but not to anxiety, but just to emotions. What you mentioned, a friend sort of reached out and, and maybe asked what led you to write this book right now? I guess. This particular book, actually, I had a, a person called me up and said, why don't you write another book? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking, well, my, my, my writing career is done. You know, I, I've written my books. I've said, well, I need to say this. Ah, come on, write a book. i got a publisher interested. And so I said, okay. So I was thinking about it. And I said, you know, there's so much misinformation and misunderstanding of emotions. Why don't I deal with that? Since that's something I've always been interested in. I, I don't know if I mentioned this book or not, but and even in, in high school, my sophomore year, I uh, they were, one of my nicknames was Mr. Spock back when Star Trek was started. Yeah. Because I was interested in just that, that whole emotional thing just always fascinated me. So it says, you know, I said, why don't I deal with that and just kind of take everything that I've kind of uh, thought about and, and put it into this book and see if I can do something that people can, you know, use in a way that, that will help them. Uh, yeah. That's more general than the specific things I've written on in the past. That That's kind of how I came about writing it. And then once I got started writing it, it just sort of started flowing. So... That's great. So that was, I guess, was what I meant. Like the first book, you already had the structure worked out because right. you were already working on this program. With this one, was it something you had to give a lot of thought to? Like, was it a very intellectual exercise? Like, let well, me take I, this stuff I, I, I out. I do a lot of research. I mean, uh, I, I read a lot about pancepian affective neuroscience, and I read, wow. you know, all, all the different topics. Uh, I go in, I just read as many papers as I can. I kind of digest them, let it set for a while, and then I just sit down and I start writing. Uh, my, my process for writing is I can type about as fast as uh, I can think. And so wow. I just sit there and I just sort of flow and I just got a general topic. I, you know, after I've done all this research, yes. and let, it kind of, let the subconscious kind of sort it all out. Yeah. I sit down and I, I just I start writing and then I'm still old fashioned. I print it out and then I sit down with some with a pen and some scissors and tape and I start wow. cutting things up and I start kind of pasting it together and, and then I say, Okay. Then I go back to the computer and I 
redo, redo it, it. Based, on, based on the computer. And that, that's my process. And I find after about three rewrites, it's getting close. Okay. I mean, you can rewrite forever, right? Yes, I know. It is never ending. Well, because so, you're changing every time. And especially if yeah. you've gone from start to finish, even more of that processing. Yeah. I love hearing this is especially challenging, I think, for people who are writing nonfiction, especially right. if some of it is is prescription. And if they have come from a background of academia at all, there's this, I don't know if it's necessarily egoic. It's just the way that academia has written in the past. We have a past episode talking to two academic writers about how things are shifting. But again, right. taking all of this research and giving readers what they really need, which is not just a you sort of spitting out all the research right. you did. What they really are looking for is your way of switching it and changing it. And it sort of is fully integrated into you. And then you sharing it in a way that as I said, accessible was my number one word. It's just so easy to well, attach to probably, what you've probably, written. And probably my teaching experience, you know, because yeah, yeah. one of the things that, you know, I really focused on is how do I get this textbook or this, this stuff and make it in a way that the students can understand it? Yes. Um, and so, you know, 20 years of that, you do hone that skill a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you've, I think you've fully honed it, but I'm even thinking like, as you've gone through that process and I'm old school as well. There's like a lot of paper around this desk, yeah. but cutting and pasting and then rewriting it in a way that flows a little bit better for you. Right. But even as you get to the end of that, as you said, the editing process could be never ending because of course, by the time you get to the end, those things will still continue to shift around. Like some you, of them might you solidify. Al al you always see something that you could change. Yeah. Like, so oh, my, my general rule of thumb is, is write it three times, you know, about three time, sometimes the fourth time, then send it out to my readers and let's set. How did you pick your readers other than your first hyper copy editor who well, had this, a CD? This one, I just went on like Fiverr and okay. books and, 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 you know, I just, put, you know, you know, I, I just was looking for people, you know, if you have friends, you know, I had some friends, you know, friends a lot of times and people, you know, they're not that great of readers, you know, well, this is very good. Well, that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, and next I went through a bunch of them uh you know I, I would send some chapters out and i'd see what kind of feedback i got from them and if they were kind of general comments or nothing really specific i mean i, I had a gal in england who was great she had been in therapy for a lot and so she had a lot of yes. good comments you know i had a gal down a couple of gals actually down in brazil and okay um, they were you know just very you know ordinary ladies but they gave me some really good insights and they were doing all the exercises you know telling me how they yes how they responded to them and stuff so the this particular set of beta readers actually I got through online. Uh, That's amazing. I hadn't really thought about directing people that way, but you're absolutely right. Not only yeah. are friends and family, unless they're in publishing, and, and I still have like a bit of a caveat right. to that. Most people are either going to not necessarily give you the kind of critical feedback that you're looking for yep. on one side of the spectrum or the other, to be honest. They can give right. you feedback. So I tell people, like, be specific about the kind of feedback you're looking right. for. Like, right. I'm not looking for typos at this point, but if you could say this, this, or this, or 
like you said, they can just be very complimentary, which is nice, but is not right. actually helping you to clarify something that might not be strokes, strokes the ego. ego. Yeah, yeah. And we like we like that. But I have to say too, I've heard people the that internal editor doesn't believe what they say anyway. Because of course people. they're a they're a yeah. taskmaster. They'll say like I'll take it, yeah. but you have to put it out there. So actually getting feedback and going to Upworks or Fiverr, where there's an exchange of right. some sort, they'll also likely come back to you in a timely fashion. I thought it was right. so uh, right. nice that you said a couple of weeks, because I know lots of people who go out and try to get beta readers and it and it's like chasing reviews, which can yeah. be painful. And it's something oh, that yeah. every writer I know struggles with. And so you just have to be persistent when it comes to that. Make it easy as easy as possible, I say, for reviews. But what a great idea about going and being discerning still, but going to people who are likely to be able to get the responses back to you in the timeframe that you set, because it's a professional engagement. And that doesn't have to be really expensive. It's not. And and that is the nice thing, because if you work with somebody in Brazil or, you know, an expatriate someplace, Mm. you know, in Africa or someplace that they really can do it in a very cost effective way. And, you know, I'm, I'm willing to spend some money to make it look good, make it yeah. read well. You know, yeah. So. Well, and I am positive any publisher would be happy to hear that because yeah. it doesn't mean they won't still have their edits because like you said, you could just keep oh, it yeah. going. But yep. in, the- in my experience is, is they'll do have two editors. You'll have your yes. primary editor and then you'll have your copy editor. And yeah. uh, I had one copy editor, you know, you're talking about not being wedded to your two <laughs> To you, <laughs> way you say things, and for some reason, she just didn't like it. Whenever you had however or therefore, she didn't want it at the beginning of the sentence, right? So, every place she would move it into the sentence, right? I feel well, it's your dive, you know. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> wow, so well, it says the same thing, but yeah, but if okay, your, if, that, if that's yeah, your peculiarity look. as a copy editor, then okay. yeah, isn't it you funny? Know? I think too, there are some, and languages are living, I believe, and so oh, yeah. there are certain things we do now that we didn't do. No, oh, yeah. Way back when well, I, I had I had to learn how to do how to do gender, you know, non what do they call it? Uh, the non-gender, non-binary, the, and yeah. so gender neutral. Yeah, yeah, gender neutral. Yeah, because because when I wrote my first book, that was just starting, and so I had to learn. Okay, it's not. Pe- not he, but people, or not, you know, this this guy, or it's, you know, one can, you know, use, using that type of vocabulary yes. was a whole wow. learning process for me because yeah. I, I I grew up on the dinosaurs roamed, and so we yeah. used the old, the old fashioned <laughs> phraseology. Yeah, I know. Look, and I would say I'm biased towards wanting to shift and change as as mm. cultures change yeah. and we're expanding our understanding of other people's lived experience in their internal experience when it comes to writing there are all of these nuances that can be challenging. I think the goal being, like you'd said, write however you can get it out of you as, and I say race to the end, trying not to be pedantic because you will be changing it. Like there's probably no section in the book that you have now that looks exactly like it did at the beginning, other than your name or (laughs) maybe even the intro can change. And and if I were to edit today, it would be different. Yes. Well, because again, we're all shifting. However, yeah, yeah, it's nice to have a line to put under it. You're like, this is how far I'm getting it. And the other thing, that experience of saying, even with innumerable beta readers, this is how far 
I can go with the edit myself. This is the level to which I have honed my craft here. And now I want that external sort of expertise. And then you get to go either back and forth with a copy editor or somebody who doesn't like the way a certain sentence reads. And then, like you said, you decide when you're going to check your ego at the door. And there's some fights worth fighting, but I think you've outlined some ways that... Yeah, and and it it might be valuable that my first book, I sent out to, shoot, almost 50 publishers, and I got all these reject letters. Mm. And about, about half of them were... The book was too specific, and the other half was it was too general. I, isn't that, that hilarious? What, yeah. What that what that really meant is I was an unknown quantity. Yeah, look. And, and so that's why I self-published it, and after I sold 50,000 copies of it, that's why Warner Books picked it up. They're now half yeah. shut. But yeah. the, because your book can get killed in two different places when you send it to a publishing company. Yeah. It can get killed by the primary editor who says, you know, this is garbage, I don't like it. Or maybe they love the book, and then it goes to the sales department. And the yeah. sales department says, will this sell? And if it won't yeah. sell, then it gets killed there. So Yeah. Well, what I say is if they don't think they can sell it, right? Exactly. I'm always going to be the champion of, of the writer. Exactly. And exactly. say the goal is to, essentially what you did is, is the longer way, uh, which is absolutely the path that a lot of people need to take. But that is you prove that in it's fact it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. And now they often say specific, but I in... Uh, my work as a literary agent as well. I get those bits of feedback from publishers as well. Yeah, Only yeah. recently, one on one day and the exact opposite. This is too commercial and this is not commercial enough. Same manuscript. Right. Right, and it's right. like, okay, <laughs> whatever. Uh, Someone is it's just a, it's, like a Goldilocks. It's opinion, right? It's opinion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, when I did the first book, I, I when I was doing the, the cover, you know, I went to some supposedly experts on color and they, they they suggested all these different colors with red and orange and so I, I did some mock-ups and I sent them to, gave them to my clients and all the ones that the experts liked, they hated. All the anxiety disorder people, they wanted the cooler colors. That's so, yes, that's what, I'm, that's I'm a little with. bit That's shocked. what I went with. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, and I support that as well. The bottom line is test market. Yes. You know, it, that's what you do with any product, right? So you do yeah. the same thing. And which is again, why you have the, the beta readers, you know, go through your work is you're basically yeah. doing a test market. Yeah. And you're seeing what works and what doesn't work. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. for being on today. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to read this first book. Now I'm going to go get the other book on anxiety as well. Yeah. Fun to talk about the, the whole process of writing. So, yeah. Well, and like I said, I think although the listeners aren't necessarily a direct market, if we're talking all that marketing stuff, mm-hmm. the truth is that even if we're talking about writing, number one, writers are people and they are likely to experience a lot of these things that, that you've got yeah. in the book. In addition to the fact that I think this is actually a great addition to any writer's little library when they're trying to fill out really believable characters. And when they get stuck, I get a little bit woo-woo with my writers and I talk about sort of having conversations with their characters. And if you can't, you have, this you have is to make a them, great reference. Have to, you have to make them real people. Yes. And again, while the people in the book are not a specific person, they're a combination of two or three people. They are real people. And, yeah. you know, and so when I'd be writing about them, I always would imagine that person and my interaction with them. Mm. Well, and, and I guess that really comes through, to be honest, because... Mm. I know, obviously, that you wouldn't be sharing exact people, right? 
but they all seemed fully formed. So I too could see them walking around in the world. You gave just enough backstory for us to understand why they'd be going through certain things. You've Mm -hmm. got some who have had a harder childhood and others who had a seemingly, you know, using quotation marks, great childhood. And yet we all are affected because as you said, we're children who are filing things away from a child's perspective. And then we're moving around in the world as adults without ever reassigning those things to what might be happening. Just a bunch of big kids walking around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what we are. Well, thank you so much. Again, everybody go out and get his book. And I hope that we see some more books from you in the future. Okay, we'll see. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more writers in conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.